as I've told my team, I'm as famous as I ever care to be. And so I can devote my energy to advancing you. And it's consistent with my embrace of servant leadership. It's this next phase where I'm now actually beginning to work for people who used to work for me, which is a really interesting and fun phase of a career. Well, welcome back to season four of the Faculty Factory podcast. I'm Kim Skorupski, your host, and I'm really glad to be here and glad you joined us on the podcast. We're starting off season four, uh, the year 2022, with some oldies but goodies. We're doing a reunion parade. And with us today is the great Dr. David Rogers from Alabama. Dr. Rogers, how are you doing today? I'm good, Kim. How are you? I'm good. Folks, David Rogers was with us on episode number eight. So back in season number one, we are now way over 150, well, not way over 150 episodes, but there'll be a link on the facultyfactory.org website to go check out his first episode, again, number eight, back in January 29th, 2019. So Three years, and you'll you'll hear if you listen to his episode, a lot of things were kind of prophetic about uh, the current time. But David, why don't you tell everybody who you are and what you do in Alabama? So I was, in 2019, held the dual roles of Senior Associate Dean for Faculty Affairs and Professional Development, and had also become the Chief Wellness Officer for UAB Medicine. And UAB Medicine is the collective of all of the different entities um, that include the School of Medicine, but include other aspects of it as well. Um, Earlier this year, I stepped down from the senior associate dean role to focus all of my administrative time just completely on wellness. Love it. Wellness. Yeah, this is, wow, what what good timing or fortuitous. uh, Talk about coincidences that wellness started hitting our, you know, environments and our cultures and then we get a global pandemic. So this is kind of a, an interesting pattern of events. So to tell us, you know, how this whole thing happened for you and how did you, your office fare and your faculty do this past year in this new role? Yeah, I think it's, um, you know, I've described that the effect that the pandemic has had is it's been a great uh, illuminator. So things like uh, inequity of healthcare. You know the the contribution of racism to different groups. All of this stuff has just become, I think, more starkly apparent. And we certainly have struggled here in Alabama uh, with our uh, staff and providers. Uh, people have really been stressed and distressed. You know, we're experiencing a lot of the same things uh, where people are just walking away from healthcare just because of the chronicity of it. The, I think what it has exposed is that, uh, at least at, it, here at UAB, that we could have done better, you know, in terms of how we were treating people. But this is an opportunity to really double down on that and say, as we try to build back into whatever our future is, more focus on people, how we treat people, you know, how we lead people is really important. Um, I've compared it. I grew up in Tampa, Florida, and my family would go to the beach for our vacations uh, because it was available and cheap. Uh, And the pandemic to me has felt like what it felt like as a child where you would get out in the deeper water and you would get overtopped by a wave. So you would just the wave would come over you. And that wasn't bad. But if the if the if the surf was up, 
then you just got hit after wave after wave after wave. Mm. So I think what we're seeing is this accumulated effect of a just wave after wave of stressors. And early on, it was just anxiety about the virus and then no PPE and then financial cuts and then, you know, people beginning to quit and that pushed on ever burden. So it it definitely has heightened, I think, everyone's awareness that we need to be thinking about wellness, not only for our faculty and staff, but our learners. How do we prepare our learners? In my own family, I had a couple of great grandparents that died in the pandemic of 1918. And I know that that became a part of our family, you know, and my grandmother would talk about her mother. And I think there's some lessons whether the pandemic is ever over or just evolves into something, we do need to, I think, huddle up and you know, think about what are the lessons we've learned. So mm-hmm. I think a focus on wellness is one of those lessons. Mm-hmm. I, I love that metaphor of the wave after wave and then the waves that keep hitting us now, obviously these variants. Right. I think a lot of us expecting that this would be over by now. And so, yeah, this. how do you, so thinking and using, you know, riffing on the metaphor what saved you as a young child from the wave after wave after wave after wave? What are some of the possible ways that you got out of that? And then what enabled you to have the courage or the interest to even go back in that ocean ever again? Yeah. Yeah. It's a good way to think about it. The way we uh, are trying to work on wellness is at multiple levels because the stressors come from society, you know, like we have a low vaccination uptake in Alabama. So People get very frustrated, angry when people show up with COVID that just refuse to get the vaccine for whatever reason. Uh, some of those societal things are tough, but we you know, work on advocacy around that. Some are organizational. We think senior leadership has to be attentive to the effects on it. What individuals can do is to take some ownership of your own wellness. So to continue the uh, ocean metaphor, you know, I've encouraged people to look at stress management techniques and resilience training. Uh, we really like the SMART program that was developed by Amit Sood, who was at the Mayo Clinic. Uh, he's now got his own program, but he's got a really accessible program that's evidence-based. But um, you really have to, that's what you can do is like getting somebody to throw you a, a floating device when you're out in the waves. That's something you can start right away. But I make it very clear that our organizational approach is not to make the the workforce more resilient, but also to be more thoughtful about work and how do we design work and how do we ask people to do their work. We've had a lot of pressure in healthcare that I think has, it was already causing burnout before the pandemic ever came. Mm -hmm. It was just a tidal wave on top of a, a building problem. So that's been our approach is individual team leaders, senior leaders, but even out into society trying to mitigate some of these stressors. Yeah. So you said earlier, really focusing on, you know, getting back to people, how do we treat and how do we lead? And you kind of made me think of something, I think it was 60 minutes, maybe I saw over the, on Sunday night where, or maybe it's a Sunday morning show, I don't know, where they they interviewed restaurant leaders or people who, who owned restaurants. And they talked and this woman was saying, you know, we just realized that we had to really it's not about just about um, raising the minimum wage. It's about treating your employees better. You give give them health care, some opportunities. 
pay them a really good wage that the turn, not only are they having restaurant owners having a hard time getting employees, but keeping the employees. So how do you do that? And she's saying, it's not just enough to do this. You have to do all these other things. And so that kind of made, made me curious, what were we doing wrong that made you realize, you know, we weren't really people-centered and people are now walking away. Um, they're not going to go back into that ocean because we weren't there to throw them the little floaty or we didn't form a human chain to pull them out. Uh, we didn't lift them up on our shoulders. So what were your observations or where are you pivoting to really focus on treating and leading people? I think that we there are some really good models of how to design work that creates opportunity for people to engage and flourish. Uh, so one is self-determination theory. Another is job demands resource theory. And in those, you know, it's about uh, a, an important feature. If you look at that or uh, the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, a really important uh, need for people is belonging, you know, feeling appreciated and having time for social support. And, you know, I've been around clinical medicine since uh, 1985, I guess, when I was a medical student. And what I've seen is people have been put under pressure and a lot of it's about how we fund healthcare. So we've really uh, increased the pace at which people are doing their work. And I think really exhausted people, things like the electronic health record were never really designed to make care easier. They were designed for other reasons, including capturing events for finance. So I think there's been a, a real push around efficiency and finance. And what we squeezed out are the time for that opportunities for people to interact with you socially. And some of that has to be on us. So if you think about like national meetings, a great to me, the reason to even physically go to a national meeting are those social interactions. But when we all go out to the breaks and then get our, our phones checking our emails, or it's like, this is ridiculous. We just traveled 500 miles to then be interacting with the office. We need to be intentional about building our own social support. So I think that what has happened is the pressures are such that we've squeezed out that opportunity for people to feel like that they have social interactions and that they really belong in an important way to the organization. So inefficiency is not bad, but I think the emphasis has been on uh, too much of it's been on around production and efficiency, and we need to get to a better balance so that people have time to do these other things that we we know are really important. It's not, this is not new information. Some of these models are decades old and we but we've neglected it I think in thinking about healthcare work. I, I love that you brought up self-determination theory and it's making reminding me of Jeff Linus, University of Rochester. We recorded two episodes with him and one was exactly on self-determination theory yeah. um, about the, the three factors of it. And those of you who are interested go back and check that out. That was you probably, I can't, I can look up when, it, when he posted, but Jeff Linus, L-Y-N-E-S-S, three components of self-determination theory, autonomy, competence, and relatedness or connectedness. Yep. So this is just perfect. You know, autonomy, I do it because I want to do it and I have a sense of choice. Competence, am I good at it? Am I a master of it? And then relatedness and connectedness, others and common goals and, and the people. And, and it's so I really think it's so, so important what you just said about um, 
this this emphasis on productivity and efficiency and making us feel like or all of us buying into this idea of um, machines, this cult of busy and out busying each other and ourselves and this feeling that we have to be these human doings rather these human beings. And if you don't have your cell phone in your hand during a break, then, oh, you must not be very important. So it's, it's this really strange. And I like the way you said that it's not it's not the individual's cell, um, um, responsibility to just be more resilient and do mindfulness and do yoga and and be tough and be strong and soldier through this. And it's also not the organization's responsibility solely. It's 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 both. Isn't it always? And that's just the complexity of it, that we have to both be working together and taking responsibility ourselves, but we can't operate in a vacuum. We have to be in a culture, in a department, in a unit, on a floor that works together to say, you know, get you're on vacation. I don't, please don't answer your emails or we're going to disable it. No, do not text me. I'm not going to text you if there are any problems or I don't want to see your face or hear anything about you till you come back from the Himalayas. Um, yeah, that's well stated. My funniest thing in this era has been people, senior leaders who take a picture of their office and use that as their Zoom background instead of just showing that they're sitting at home. You know, what what is it about our culture that makes us feel like that there's something to be proud of, that we're toxic, you know, in our busyness? And so I think just trying to be present with people when you're in conversation or just being attentive. We have a couple of sayings in Alabama. The one that I really like is uh, the people at the end of an interaction say, I appreciate you. And I, I've really used that a lot just to, it's, to me as a measure of respect, you know, to say, you know, I see that you helped me and I thank you for your kindness. And I think more of that, you know, I think, in, and that's where I, feel like academic medical centers could be exemplar for the rest of society. I mean, we have opportunities where people can do new things and interesting things. And certainly the work that we do is incredibly impactful and it's socially good. Like we don't have to worry about, like I'm not working for a social media conglomerate right now. I'm worried about that. I'm now being accused of forming toxicity. So we do a thing that people like and value. Uh, and yet we don't, I don't think, do a good job. When we talked last, we talked about servant leadership and a really good model of that for senior leadership is senior leadership isn't their customers so-called aren't the patients. Their customers are frontline workers. Yeah. And that's where I think we need to do better. They need to be saying, what do I need to do to support you and what you're doing? So, so important. I like that. Again, I, I always get, I hate that I'm always torn in two and it's always a yes. And it's a yes. And yeah. it's, is recognizing what you said earlier about being present, being with other people. I mean, I'm saying this to you as I'm still in my basement, home alone, um, but and being an extrovert. How do we balance this um, obvious need that we're human beings and we need to be with other human beings? We are social beings, social creatures, and we need, we just need each other. How do we balance that? truism with the fact and preference of some people to say, please don't make me come back to work. I know that you want us to return to work. I know that there is this little bit of a taboo that I have to have a fake background in my 
Zoom box that you don't think I'm on a beach in Tahiti or in my bed in my jammies. Who, you know, who, why do I have to be forced to then drive an hour and a half into work, pay for parking, you know, buy lunch, um, worry about daycare for my kiddos, and then drive back home when I'm uber efficient at home? So I, I, I hear this both sides and I appreciate both sides of it because I, I am, I am both sides and we're all both sides. So how do we meet in the middle with, I want people, please, let's all have a cup of coffee. Can we run into each other in the restroom? I'm tired of being alone in the restroom Yeah. versus people saying, please don't make me do this. This, I am so much more efficient. I am not getting out of the park, staying at home and, and it's working for me. So how do we do that, David? You know, I think the best way to do is to think about the um, people and their job. Another good job model is called uh, a job person fit. So I think in every case, what I would, my aspirational uh, point and the point I've been preaching is with everybody who's doing jobs, have a conversation with your supervisor to say, where are you? You know, we, we're all trying to figure out the rules of re-engagement. What does that look like? What I'm advocating is every supervisor or leader would say to all of the people that work for them, let's talk about your job and your preferences and where are you and what's good for you. If your preference is to stay home and you can do your job to stay home, I've been arguing with senior leadership, this is in your strategic interest to let people do this. It means that they're even more productive because they get all that commute time to work. They, uh, I'm going to help you with parking. All academic medical centers don't have enough parking. So I'm going to give you 20% of your parking spaces for nothing. And I'm going to create loyalty in your workforce that says, hey, I was heard. Now, it may be that your job doesn't allow you to be home, or it may be your preference is I really need to come back to the office. And so I think working out the right combination and balance, our position is that it just needs to be done in a collective way with full engagement by everybody so that we can have conversations and then sort out the best system long term. This is one of the lessons we should learn from the pandemic when it served the organization's interest to send us all home and make us remote in, that's what they did. And now that it's serving their interest or just some philosophy of you all need to come back, it's like, why are we doing that? Why don't we learn some lessons from all of this that we can use? Because I think the next generation of workforce is gonna say, we really wanna be able to have hybrid work and work options, not to mention flexible work, which would be to the great advantage of young parents and all these other things you know, that we've been pushing on. David, I agree with everything you just said. Now, just allow me to play devil's advocate, if you will. Okay. I'm making the boo-ha-ha finger, <laughs> fingers together. And this is where my my goofy mind goes to that cart. Not was it a cart? It was a cartoon with little Wally, a little robot guy, who was on Earth, and his whole job was to smash garbage and make little cubes of garbage. Oh, yeah. Earth was no longer inhabitable. And then they show the future with um the human beings where we're just this big blobo people yeah. who just yeah. scooted around in little bean pods with oversized <laughs> drink things. Yeah. Now this is again my my Looney Tunes brain. David, we don't want people to stay home. It's ruining. We live in a society here. Now that sounds like I think it's George on, on Seinfeld. We live in a society. How can we have a society if we have chunks of people 
who are not part of our society, that they're not in the club. And I'm thinking back at church, you know, our pastor's like, please come back, come back and say, yeah. come back. And some yeah. people are probably, again, they, they're comfy at home dialing into church in their jammies. So why do yeah. they can come in? Because there is something to be said for worshiping together. Yeah. So, you know, help me. Let's, you know, what do we say to the fact that some people are like, we, if we have everybody at home in their, on their couches for the rest of their lives, what kind of a world are we living in? If we're not together, do we have to be together? Yeah, well, see, I think that's what, you know, we're hearing is a lot of this sort of philosophy, like a senior leader just decides that social cohesion is improved by us gathering together. Well, I think that if you read the literature on social cohesion, it would tell you a couple of things. One is not everybody needs that time. You know, a fundamental difference between introverts and extroverts is social engagement is energizing to extroverts. It has a cost to introverts. It doesn't mean that it's not good for people to be together. As we talked about, you know, belongingness and being together are as important. I think the solution is to be is thoughtful and purposeful about when we gather together and also to be sensitive that people still have young children at home or they have older adults that are at health risk that we need to accommodate those differences. So I think to use the church analogy, I can't worship collectively by myself. Right. So to me, that's the argument you make that it's going to land differently if you come together and sing or do other elements of worship, depending on your particular faith choice. There are things that you can only do together. So let's get together and do those things. But things that we can do apart, let's also do that apart or offer that opportunity. I'm kind of curious to see like are the national organizations like what are meetings going to look like? Are we going to go to hybrid options for everything? And there's a strategic value for groups to say, well, if you don't want to come and start thinking about things like climate change, maybe instead of all of us flying all over to go to these meetings, maybe some of us would choose to be a little bit more selective about when we would gather together. So like I, as a surgeon, I've never quit gathering with people because surgery is a thing that takes a team and requires a physical contact. And so parts of my life have never stopped. And for people like you who truly derive great joy from gathering together, we should afford those opportunities and figure out how to do it safely. Um, But I think trying to negotiate the parameters and be thoughtful about it is what I'm advocating for. In the same way, if you say, I don't feel comfortable coming to work, but you can't do your job any other way and the organization can't find a thing for you to do, well, then we need to come to a a time of respectful separation to say, you know, if you're here to check in patients and you can't do that from home and we can't find a good place to use you, then we're just going to have to agree that this doesn't work for us anymore. So, uh, but I'm just asking that it be done thoughtfully and with full engagement of everybody and being sensitive to that it's just not the senior leader decides it's we all need to be together, that it ought to be a collective decision that we sort out. I mean, so well said. And I just I want to just put an exclamation point on that, that collective and um, it can't be. It's not going to be unanimous. The decision not. is not going to be unanimous. So and you can't force people to say, you know, 
nine of us, it's about 12 angry men. You, you can't say, well, we're all on board. How come you don't want to come in and have bagels with us on Friday? Exactly. So no that, judgment. That, right. That respect right. of people's choice, you know, is, is part and parcel of that community, you know, decision. Well, and many years ago, I had to challenge myself about followership. And I, there are many things that my, among my leaders, you know, want to do that it wouldn't be my preference. But I sort of said, unless I have some moral ethical objection, then I'm just going to do it, right? I think leadership is hard and we owe that to the leaders. So this week I put on a suit, strapped on, you know, a KN94 mask and went to a social thing that people felt was really important that we do in person. And then just, you know, remain amused and curious that everybody comes into the room with their mask off and take it down to eat and drink. And I'm like, this just seems silly. Uh, but, you know, that's part of where I have to challenge myself to, you know, play along and and do those social things that are important to people. So, yeah. Love it. I love it. Now, I wanted to um, hear what you had to think, um, your thoughts and your wisdom around transitioning. Yeah. Yeah. So my decision to leave the senior associate dean role, and I think what I would uh, pass on to people that listen in um, globally to your thoughts and your interviews is, you know, I elected to step down to that role for a couple of reasons. One is I had been in it for nine years. I did have this opportunity to focus exclusively on wellness. I learned a lot from the faculty affairs community that's been really valuable in this work. But I felt, I feel like that after that you really shouldn't be in these jobs forever, that you need to set for yourself a term. Many organizations do it. I think it's a good thing to do yourself to say, I'm going to serve in this role for five years with maybe one renewal, and then I'm going to step out. And I think that's important because these things need a fresh perspective and fresh energy. You know, you get to the point where you feel like I've got this sorted out just perfectly. To me, that's a sign that it's a time for a fresh look at it. But the other has to do with equity that, you know, we, know we still struggle not to have enough women and people in underrepresented minority groups in these senior leadership roles. As we talked about last time, I believe the higher you go, the lower you are. Nonetheless, you do have an opportunity to have influence on decisions and that sort of thing. So stepping down then gives my organization to rethink the profile of the leadership team and who's in it. And hey, can we bring in a fresh perspective of a mid-career woman faculty or a mid-career person who's in an underrepresented group? to kind of enrich the perspective of a group. Mm -hmm. uh, so I was, what I'm trying to figure out now as I reach in probably the last phase of my career is what I derive great joy from is helping now people in their first leadership role be successful. And I would encourage it to any of your listeners that if you're worried, if I step down, will there be things to do? You begin just to derive more happiness to advancing those people and giving them opportunity. As I've told my team, I'm as famous as I ever care to be. And so I can devote my energy to advancing you. And it's consistent with my embrace of servant leadership. It's this next phase where I'm now actually beginning to work for people who used to work for me, which is a really interesting and fun phase of a career. Uh, I love it, love it, love it, love it. Now, here, here at Hopkins, what we did is, um, and I've been here almost nine years, and so like you, I'm thinking 10 years is, is going to be a time for me to move on and, and just step off and let other people, you know, it's, it's kind of 
I don't know. I feel, I feel like you that there should be term limits because even despite all of our good intentions and our passion and our history, they're, they're just new ideas, new generations, fresh ideas. Um, we need to kind of reinvigorate. So I, um, oh gosh, no, I just lost my train of thought again. I swear sitting in my basement is okay. So this is it. Uh, this is, this is it. Uh, don't edit this out, Casey. I, 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 let's all just be, be real here. So what we did over the summer here in Hopkins in the office of faculty is, you know, we, we have under the office of faculty, our, you know, cadre of associate dean, assistant dean folks for little smidgens of time here and there, here and there. Well, what we had not done a good job of over the, say, the prior nine years since I've been here almost, is we had not really thoughtfully engaged or collaborated strategically with the leaders in all of our almost 30 departments in the School of Medicine who hold titles like vice chair for faculty development, vice chair for mentoring, uh, director of promotion committees, uh, grant review committees, all those leaders. And we thought we really need to bring this community together to build community between the departments and us, have a bench, you know, start getting a bench for succession planning, share best practices, get them talking to each other as well as talking to us and back and forth. And that way, it, to me, it's, it's, there's just so much wisdom out there that instead of us, us pushing things down to the departments and saying, my gosh, and by golly, why don't they just use our template for mentoring? If don't they know about the website? Well, yeah. rather than, than that kind of push, 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 say, let's all sit together. And lo and behold, we just started this in Ju- July, I think. This group of our faculty, we call them the Faculty Affairs and Development Board, the FADB, they've branched off into four working groups around promotion, around mentoring, around wellness, around resources for faculty and research. And they are going crazy with just tools and and organizing resources and surveys and data and coming together. And there's so much enthusiasm and passion and energy and we've been sitting on this the whole time. And so I, I'm curious how you in Alabama structure or think about or engage or identify your leaders for at, at this top tier. Um, how does that work for you operationally? Yeah, so we, we've done exactly what you did with wellness. So we have a group of faculty and staff wellness champions is the term we use in all of the departments and other units and we bring together and we've had exactly the same experience. They've brought great ideas and it connects them uh, to each other. You know, we get them to present, like when we hear a really great idea, we get them to present to the group. And we also have a communication piece that we do once a week about wellness. And we highlight those wellness champions who are are, to a large degree, uh, younger faculty who have a great passion for this conversation. But what we've seen in that, the strategic value is the department chairs, of course, are they get very proud when they see their department, you know, when when a practice is happening in their department. So we've used it to help the champions by being able to say to the department chair, hey, your you know, department got called out in a positive way. And so it is creating a really vibrant uh, community. And so I think it's a really good model. And I congratulate you for doing it. We've had exactly the same experience. 
I don't think we do as good as we should in terms of thinking about um, succession planning. We have started a process, which I think has been very good for the interim chairs who are typically internal people. They have started putting together an actual search committee and accepting applications. And I think that begins to then build a portfolio of, oh, this person is gonna be really good. And some of those people that serve as interim chairs, even if they don't become the permanent chair, the incoming chair recognizes their great talent. And so they find another role for them. So I think you just have to really be disciplined about thinking where, and then giving people opportunities and then making sure that you come alongside and develop them. You know, I've many times said that a great uh, resource for me and my faculty development work is every stupid mistake I've ever made. And so I talk a lot about that fairly authentically to say, this is a mistake I made. Don't make the same mistake, at least make new mistakes. Mm -hmm. You know, that's how we're going to advance the academy. And so I think that that developing a community and then being thoughtful about bringing people on to allow them to you know, thoughtfully succeed. Because I do see that when chairs come here from other places, it takes them about a year to really kind of understand the place. Invariably, the number one mistake they make is they think promotion and tenure works here, like where they're coming from, and it never does, ever. And so it's always rough in that first four years. So I think there's a lot to be said for grooming up your own people internally to let that be a significant amount of your leadership, but also recognizing some of those people will get recruited away. And that's good for the the general society of academic medicine to have some mixture of both internal and outside people being leaders. Yes, I I agree with you. And I and I also um, appreciate your focus on diversity and equity and inclusion and purposely uh, identifying people for the diverse diversity that they represent, be that in the, I always talk about the broad range of diversity, age, rank, degree yeah. type, department, specialty, and then of course the usual um, race and ethnicity and, and gender and identity and um, on and on and on and on. And so that, that also to me is um really, really important that we remember when we're drawing it, that we do this on purpose, that we look for um, people who can be brought up in, internally. And we do that at Hopkins. I mean, I always have an, a list of, and I could show you, people in the audience can't hear this, but, or see it, but I have a list of faculty members who, and I have them by like topic, who are like the go-to people that I'm like, next for leadership, opportunity, as we all know, and there, there are very few of them. So that's another reason why I think term limits is because you have all these people that you groom through leadership programs and mentoring them and think they'd be great. And like you said, then we run the risk of, well, we only have you know a handful of leadership opportunities and where are they going to go? They're going to go somewhere else. And how can you blame them? You can't blame them. That's part of the life cycle. And they fly out of the nest and you're very proud to say that they they were you know raised as an egg here. And so that yeah, makes yeah. good. But but um, um, golly, I think I guess I need more coffee. Oh, oh, but the 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 in, insider raising them inside and grooming them inside, I think, is so Im- important. And that we draw from not only our Fab B, the Faculty Affairs and Development Board, but all those leadership programs that we offer, the the graduates from them, the Faculty Senate. So I guess a, another message to 
faculty who are listening who maybe don't have, they don't feel like they're a leader, even though, hello, footnote, you're already a leader because you were a faculty member and you were very, very much respected in the community and by your colleagues being a, a, any kind of a professor ranking, that, that there, these opportunities can exist um, by you getting involved and engaged that people are watching you. You know, people are keeping an eye on you and keeping lists and um, making sure that when the right opportunities come up, that we do have list of people who are you know good to go, but that ha- that is only that only happens by leaders watching for that and taking yeah. care to be mindful of that and not hogging all the leadership roles and also by making transparent where are those leadership roles. That was the other thing I was trying to yammer away until I remembered was that sometimes it's it's a big opaque mess. Like who are the leaders in the departments? And you ask some of our department directors or chairs and they don't even know. I mean, there's some of the departments are so big, they really can't get their hands around the myriad roles and who's in them and who's transitioned out of them and who has a little piece of a part of this and that and the other. And what does leader constitute? Who exactly are the leaders? But if you can blow that open, that also provides like an old fashioned org chart, if you will, that that transparency allows faculty members to see opportunities and see gaps and then create their own opportunities by saying, well, we do A and we do B, but we're, then we need to have like an A plus or a B minus in there. We're not, we need, there's a little bit of space for this. Yeah, I think it's a good point. I think that the book Quiet, you know, draws uh, everyone's attention to that you need to be attentive of the people who maybe don't even have those titles, but who have just, you know, one of my favorite books on leadership is The Leadership Challenge by Kuz and Posner. And the reason I like it is it's the durable things that leaders always do. And I agree with you 100% that anybody listening to this is leading, if you think about leading as influencing other people. And, you know, I've told uh, surgical interns who'll say, well, I'm not a leader. And I said, if I were to sneak into your organization and ask the medical students about you, you already have a reputation. They're already saying you're good to work with or you're not good to work with. And so, yes, you absolutely are influencing people in the organization. But I think sometimes it's the people who don't want to draw attention to themselves or who don't gain these titles. At least here, you know, we love a good title and I've learned to use them strategically. But there's a lot of people that are doing leadership, but that are so humble that they don't even, you know, ask for a title. What I would say to them is you need to get the title that's requisite with the work and the responsibility because it does create additional opportunities in the future. So by the same token, I would challenge current leaders to look beyond the org chart and say, who is out there that really that there's in one of Collins's book, I think he talks about so-called water carriers people that maybe never were in the ultimate jobs, but they've been incredibly important. They're the people you think about and to say, oh, we should put those people into formal roles too, so. Mm -hmm. Very good stuff. I appreciate you, David. (laughs) That's good. I appreciate you back. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, this is so good. I really, uh, yeah, love all this. And as you know, I could sit here in the talk with you for hours and hours and hours and especially easily talk for hours when I forget half of the things I want to say, but I eventually get around, get around to, this is another, this is one of the problems with the pandemic is I really, I really feel like I'm losing a lot of my like 
words. I, I kind of lose track of my thought. And I don't know what that is because I'm all by myself. So it's not as if I've got a thousand distractions, but so maybe I better get in with people because uh, I'm slowly losing my capacity to recall yeah. and remember things. Well, I think we're all having to, like, I've been uh, fun, uh, have fun watching people like figure out how do we greet each other? Are we shaking hands? Are we tapping elbows or what are we doing? I need to do some searching around to see what are they doing in Europe where they were, you know, you would kiss each other on the cheek. It's like, what's happening? So it's fun watching two people approach each other and have to sort of signal like, this is what we're doing. So, you know, we probably need to get you back with people so you don't, you know, lose your social skills. I'm so, I'm so, yes, backwards. I, I have a couple of times, oh my gosh, a handful of times now at the gym, I'll run into somebody and I'm just like, I'm a hugger. So I just walk up to people and grab them. And they're like, have you not heard what's happening? I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, sorry, sorry. So yeah, yeah I, I I don't observe that. I am completely like clueless so many times. Like, Kimberly, you better step back. This is not <laughs> unacceptable. <laughs> well, this is great. Folks, uh, you've been listening to and enjoying David Rogers, University of Alabama. Wow, what a great conversation. I hope you appreciated it as much as I appreciate it. And I appreciate him and I appreciate you. And I'm going to leave David with the last thought and last word. You know, I just I I really appreciate you reaching out. It's been fun to have a follow up conversation. And uh, let's don't wait uh, for another pandemic uh, between them. Um, I've been watching talk shows. I like to watch talk shows so I can track social trends without actually having to engage in them. And uh, I notice the talk show uh, guests are always people that are there to plug something. So I don't have anything to plug, but I'm happy to circle back and give you an update as I navigate my own way through life. So it's been a pleasure. Well, thanks everybody. Tune in next time to the Faculty Factory podcast. And hey, if you have any questions or ideas for topics or conversations or people, or if you want to be in the Faculty Factory, why don't you shoot me an email at facultyfactorykim at gmail.com. Again, that's all one word, facultyfactorykim at gmail.com. Bye, everybody. Come by next time. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory Podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.